are live, and I have figured out how to play the intro. Uh, this is Anarcho-Catholic, I'm Kath, here with Volgagov again. We have yes, uh, once again taken over the, the AT um, Ostratomism podcasting from Caleb. How's it going, Bulge? Going well, going well. So looking we are... at diagrams, looking <laughs> at diagrams. You'll understand this, dear, dear viewer, in the future. You will, trust me. I will make you understand. Understand might be the wrong word. So we are going to be picking up our uh, our discussion of Jacques Maritain's Degrees of Knowledge. Um, we did chapter one about two weeks ago, doing chapter two today. We'll do chapter three when we actually find time to read it and uh, and organize something. Appreciate you being here over uh, over the Christmas holiday. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. guess we'll just go ahead and dive into it if that works for you. Yeah, works for me. Where do you want to begin? Do you want to start from the beginning, or do you yeah, have I think I think that'll work. So the the what um, so the this is uh, chapter one was sort of the introductory chapter and didn't and Maritain doesn't have it fit into the the bigger scheme of his book. Chapter two is the first chapter of what he calls the first part: the degrees of rational knowledge, philosophy, and experimental science. Um, this is going to be followed in the second part. Uh, let me get the name, but it's when he moves on to more. Um, uh, revelatory forms of knowledge and mysticism and the like so yeah uh, the second part is degrees of supranatural super supra rational knowledge um so we're starting here with with the with um philosophy and experimental science and what would we call rational sciences mm -hmm. yeah, so what he does is, go ahead no he's introducing to us uh, what he calls the critical realist or critical intellectualist i much prefer the former to the latter of a critical realist approach what he calls it, but it is essentially a Thomistic Aristotelian approach to uh, epistemology at yes. the very, and, and classification of science. Because I've never seen this before, a classification of science. I've seen Aristotelian and Thomistic epistemology as well, but he does a very th thorough job, in some cases too thorough with certain diagrams, of, class <laughs> of classifying um, what he calls science, wisdom, metaphysics into different categories of knowledge. And he, he really he really lives up to the title degrees of knowledge. He puts it in steps. He shows it all to you sometimes more than you would have liked. And, you know, but he does a thorough job of it. I can, I can at least say that much. Yeah. And I think it, it is important to sort of go through this because if he's trying to, to show how it is that we know and what it is that we know, we really have to have to put things in their proper order. Um, especially because his ultimate goal is, like I said, is to, is to start talking about super rational or, or revelatory knowledge. Mm -hmm. And you can't really make sense of that if you don't understand you know, first sensory knowledge and then, and then, um, knowledge that comes from the, from the intellect directly. Um, I th so bit, bit of a, a longer chapter than the first one, but I think it's, it's a lot, he, he Can moves away a lot from the, from the, as much the, the very, um, over the top prose of chapter one mm -hmm. and really lays things out. I think in a very logical, very consistent matter, it was much yes. easier reading for me than chapter one was much, much easier. I will say though, I ignored the footnotes cause they do get to the you know page long footnotes there was one that was an entire page yeah yes and they're a much smaller font so i did tend to ignore them because i assumed they weren't important as main points <laughs> the the thing that drove me crazy because i did try and read the footnotes <laughs> but whenever he quotes saint thomas he always and i don't know about if your version does the same thing it's always entirely in latin with no translation so there'll be like a, a half yes. page footnote that is entirely in latin yes and i'll just have to say okay i, I assume this is relevant to what you're talking <laughs> okay. about but i'm gonna have to move on i assume this is accurate thank you mariton <laughs> i'll come back to you in 30 years when i can speak latin right 
So a, a sort of sort of trivial thing, but I wanted to point out because he calls his his framework, like you said, either critical intellectualist or critical realist. And unfortunately, a critical as a, a a modifier of any kind of science has become such a uh, a obscenity yeah. in the in the modern vernacular because it's mm -hmm. really been taken over by um, the critical theorists. Let's call yeah, them. yeah, Marxists essentially. Like it has become very much a leftist Marxist kind of description. Yeah. Not what Maritain's doing, but unfortunately, I mean, he's writing this in the what was it, the twenties or the thirties when yep. you could still you could still refer to to a critical science and not just be lumping yourself with with all the all the worst of of academia. Um, so the the name probably requires some revision, but he does call it critical realist. It is not critical in the sense of any kind of critical theory uh, in the in the. It is not Gramscian. I will say yes. that much at all. Yes, exactly. It, it is, is very, very like you said. It is very much scholastic or, or Aristotelian Thomist in its in its um, perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you have any preliminary notes? Because I do actually have one thing which kind of shocked me that I didn't realize before. Which go is, for it get into deeper uh when we get into the chapter proper but what really it almost pissed me off that i didn't think of this one comment he has which is sort of central to the entire thesis of this chapter is that immaterial things are more intelligible to the intellect than material things and this is you this might sound esoteric and like not at all obvious but when you realize he's using mathematics as an example and how mm -hmm. essentially the discovery of what he calls physical mathematical sciences as a regular, as a you know, a way to categorize reg, uh, uh, regularities in nature, is so obvious to us because because math is not itself tangible at all. You cannot touch a perfect isosceles triangle. You cannot touch a perfect equilateral triangle. You cannot touch a perfect right angle triangle in the real world. There, but there are no fours floating around in nature. But it is so much easier to comprehend and to analyze than a triangle that ha than a something which approximates a triangle which has a 181 degrees, and then you do need to compensate for this or that side, and then to be able to sort of apply roughly the Pythagorean theorem to calculate this this other side which you don't know, and so on and so forth, which would be you know the thing in real life. It's so much more intelligible to actually focus on the immaterial and then approximate to the material once you understand the essence of what this is approximating. And it's so obvious once he says it, but it's something that really that was, I think, the main, uh, the main, my main takeaway from this chapter was the intelligibility of immaterial things compared to material things and abstraction and the process yeah. of abstraction. That, it's, it's, those are the main takeaways that I had. It was, I can't remember if it was, I read uh, somewhere else, but it was either Saitama or it was Maritain that says that mathematics is the most connatural to, to man's understanding in terms of the sciences. Like it is the, it is the most, um, um in tune with with our way of thinking because mm -hmm. like you said that it, it is immaterial in its nature and therefore graspable the intellect but everything we know about mathematics we still we don't you know intuit he says later on he talks about you know the the foundation of math is you know you've seen a circle at some point you've seen three of something at some point mm -hmm. and then as soon as you sort of as soon as you grasp the the essence of the of the math that's in the thing then it's all intellect and your and your intellect can just do what it does and and reason through and and use deductive reasoning to to grasp the whole of mathematics yes once you've abstracted the uh, relevant what this thing is approximating the essence of what this thing really is then you can actually reason closer to uh then you can actually get to the mathematics and you can get to the other sciences and then eventually if you abstract to the upteenth degree to the maximum degree you get to metaphysics of what this thing really is of what it, of what its essence is in its relation to the first cause that being god so yeah and so i want to i want to dive into that a little bit more uh, more deeply shortly 
because mm -hmm. I do, I do want to, I want to just summarize briefly because he, he starts out sort of trying to identify what he means by science and what science is, um, what the object of science is, and um, what he concludes is that is that science, what he calls is that it's knowledge perfect in its mode or the the mind pointing out thing in things their reasons for being, uh, and and really trying to what what he's going to end up with is is the idea of essence or nature as as Aristotle and and Saint Thomas describe it. Um, as separate from Plato's idea of, of platonic forms is that you have that there isn't that things have an essence that um, is immaterial and perfect in our abstraction of it. And then mm -hmm. it, it exists, you know, specifically in a thing. So there is a human nature. I think this human nature exists in each of us, uh, but it's only in the mind that there's a universal human and hu universal nature common to all men. Yes, he has a yeah, he talks a lot about this. He, he's very much more Aristotelian than uh you know necessarily the scholastic combination of the chapter because he doesn't talk about god at a, much if at all i don't i sure. certainly don't remember if he does so he's very much more aristotelian partly because he realizes a third man problem indirectly and the other problems of platonic realism in the sense mm -hmm. that platonic realism essentially says that everything participates in a certain form so a horse participates in the form of a horse a man participates in the form of a rational animal um this leads to two main problems. The first one, famously articulated by Plato himself, who is very good at formulating objections to his own main arguments, is the third man uh, problem, which means essentially, okay, let's say that a man participates in the form of man. Well, if the form of man is an object, then what is that participating in? Because it can't just be by itself if we've established that everything that exists exists by participation in another idea or in another form. So you need to postulate a super form of man. And what does that participate in? Well, in a super, super form of man and so on and in the infinite regress. Now, this has been hotly debated uh, over the millennia, as you can imagine, of whether, you know, what kind of thing is a form, is a platonic form. Uh, whether it needs to participate in something, and if it does not need, what does that imply about what it is, and so on and so forth. And the other problem is the separation of ideas. So if man is a rational animal, and that is the essence of man, but we also know that animality exists in, uh, you know, dogs and cats and birds, then how can uh, man participate as a rational animal does he have an animality or is rational animal a separate form entirely from animality is rational animal or is it a combination of two forms? And if so, how does that work? And if it is a third form, then how can we say he has animality and call him an animal if it doesn't participate in the form of animality and so on and so forth. So he, he sort of has an, an Aristotelian almost conceptualist outlook on this, that these forms only exist separate in the mind of, uh, of the scientist or the metaphysician who partake, who undertakes to understand them. And he, uh, yeah, I guess that would be my main uh, point here. He doesn't much talk about the scholastic realism so far, but he does talk about the Aristotelian version of abstraction and how universals exist in nature. I have a few quotes here that are relevant if you want to get into them, but you say anything first. No, no, go ahead. I think that's it's a it's an excellent summary of the of the Platonic versus Aristotelian position. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and, and jump into the quotes. Uh, okay, so first he has a quote where he sort of sets up this problem. So he's talking about knowledge and science. How can science be stable if the object on which it lays holds is not necessary? It is merely contingent. 
How could a changeable and contingent object give rise to stable knowledge, one which could not be false? Furthermore, would a thing be explained? Would we be giving a reason for it if, once its reason for being were posited, it could be otherwise? That is the problem for which the very beginning has been thrust upon philo philosophical reflection. It is the problem which led Plato, when confronted with the fact of certain knowledge, to set up a world of divine ideas. So he's already setting up realism. And then he goes on to say, uh, let me see if this part is, if this underlining is necessary for the main point. Well, I'll read it anyway, and then we'll find out. It is absolutely necessary to distinguish the thing with which science is concerned, this table, the specific table that, you, that I have in front of me, for instance, and the perfectly precise object, the formal object upon which it lays hold and from which it derives its stability. For instance, the geometric properties of this table when considered in its shape or the physical chemical properties of the wood from which it is made or the laws of its manufacture. The latter, the object, does not exist when separated from the thing except in our mind, and yet it is not confused with it. On the contrary, they exist in a concrete and singular condition. Human nature exists in each of us, but only in the mind is, a, is it a universal nature common to all men. In each of us, it is Paul's or John's nature. So he already so he's very much an Aristotelian here. He's not talking about the the divine ideas and the divine intellect. He's talking about how it pertains to us, how the universals are manifest in nature without reference to the divine intellect. Is essentially is how he's trying to explain it in this chapter, at least. Mm -hmm. I remember a, a discussion <laughs> I was having with a, a mutual friend of ours about um, about knowledge as it relates to physics. And this seemed to be a sticking point on in terms of, of necessary truth, because um, their focus. I think is I on, can guess who yeah, the friend yeah, is. I by think the you, way. you probably have a, have a decent guess who this was. And this is the the point that, of course, Maritime makes better than I ever could. But that you're the science, the object of science, and this is this applies to all sciences is is necessarily true. Things the conclusions of science, at least deductive science, is necessarily true. It is saying things that are actually true, even though it's saying them about things that are not themselves that are themselves contingent. Mm -hmm. Right, and and it and it does this through this through this understanding of that the actual object of the sciences is essences, is is the nature of things. Mm -hmm. um, One of his most important discussions later on in the second half of this chapter, or at least that I found most important uh, in the beginning of the second half, is that science depends upon philosophy only in principle, but not in practice. So this is sort of obvious. I think even Hoppe talks about this. If you're a libertarian and you've read him where he sort of opposes Thomas Kuhn's paradigm of, uh, he doesn't oppose Thomas Kuhn, he sort of accepts it and explains how can science progress if every now and then we have a complete paradigm shift, which sort of upsets the entire nature of scientific advancement in the sense that it completely switches over how we've understood the element so far. So, uh, you know, the phlogiston theory of combustion to the ox, to uh, understanding what oxygen is and how that works, or uh, many other revolutions that you can think of. Uh, how does that work? How does science keep advancing? Even if, you know, every now and then we have this whole upset in our, the first principles of science, not of metaphysics, but of science relative to the whole. Well, he sort of, Hoppe sort of has a similar conclusion from an entirely different angle that, you know, science is ultimately a practical affair in a sense that it's, you know, Hoppe says it's, it's a concern of handwork or handwork, the work of the hand where it's trying to, understand regularities in nature 
So that would be the aspect in which science does not depend upon philosophy, but to explain itself and justify its method and understand what the thing it's studying really is, then in principle, it relies upon philosophy and metaphysics. Excellently said. And to, to that extent that he brings this up later, is, is it possible for science to sort of overturn the, the conclusions of philosophy? Mm-hmm. And it, and said so it's really only in so much as philosophy sort of um, oversteps what it knows if it tries to to make claims on the on the scientific that aren't that aren't um, firmly formed in its principles. So I, I could I could go on about this at length. I probably will will try and refrain a little bit from talking too much about about principles of science. But that's another um, interesting distinction that I think he makes. And I want to I want to ask you about this. Uh, we mm-hmm. won't we won't discuss the diagram just yet. I don't think just yet. No, no, no. we have more to cover before that. I think we <laughs> have to explain the so... prelude to that beforehand. <laughs> so, uh, am I good to go ahead and jump into the degrees of abstra- abstraction, or should we? Uh... Uh, Is there more comment on? That? You just commented on. Uh, uh, what did you just comment on? Sorry. So this was My a mind. philosophy being able to, or a science being able to to overturn. Um, oh, conclusions. yes. He sort of very one thing that I found uh, somewhat entertaining is that he very strongly says that science can never, never, ever overturn philosophical conclusions, uh, which is true. He's completely right to make that claim. Uh, but what he does say as sort of a concession or really sort of, you know, as necessary is that, you know, philosophy is derived is derived from beings in the world. We are experiencing beings. So we make make mistakes and overstep our bounds or even you know uh derives or have an infra-scientific experience that is just an experience in the world just an empirical just as a matter of empirical fact that we then wrongly interpret and form a wrong metaphysical basis for it so parmenides for example i'm sure that he he didn't think of the act potency distinction so he thought that change is impossible and so he derived a wrong conclusion from his experience in the world, but better understanding of science maybe, or at least more empirical knowledge and more reflection upon such empirical knowledge could have actually changed Parmenides' mind or something like that. That's as, mo- that's as far as he goes in terms of concession to uh, empiricism, let's say. Right, because by its nature, philosophy is is always higher than than science. So, and I think that sort of brings us to the next thing that he sort of the next distinction he makes mm-hmm. between sciences of explanation and sciences of observation. And I think this this gets into a lot of what he talks about later in the chapter. But he makes a a distinction between what I think we would call inductive sciences, which are more phenomenological. That can be okay. We we see this this property. We see this relationship in nature between things. Um, it's sort of a, a more of a, a fact finding, even in the as you mentioned, in sort of the the modern era, it becomes what he calls physico-mathematical, is that you have you have mathematicized a lot of these relationships, mm-hmm. um, but they are still just descriptive in 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 essence, versus sciences of explanation, which actually try and uncover what the what the essences of things are that actually try and give some kind of ontological yes. explanation for the thing. Um, it's it's interesting. I, I feel like it's it might be a, a suffering from the translation. It, it confuses me a little bit because he calls both of those sciences. There's sciences of observation, science of explanation. But later on, he makes a distinction between science and philosophy, where science seems to just be science of observation, and philosophy would seem to be a science of explanation. Did you, did you did that confuse you as well, or is it? Uh, am I missing something? Let me see. Um, he, okay, so one of the quotes I put in my own notes, I just put it as a whole. Is that uh, I think he he's categorizing everything as a science, 
but then he divides science into two. So outside of all the distinctions he's made already into science, into the degrees of abstraction and the higher types and lower types of knowledge from, uh, you know, empirical science, not yet mathematized, to physical mathematics, mathematics, to pure mathematics, to philosophy of nature, and then to metaphysics. So outside of that, science in general includes two great areas. First, there is a realm of wisdom, which uh, knows things through first causes and the highest reasons for being. So that is understanding the principles of being itself. Uh, then there's the domain of science in the narrow sense, which knows things through second causes, approximate principles. Metaphysics would be a wisdom and everything else would be, uh, a, would be just a, a science in the narrow sense. Unless you use it, in, he also makes another distinction within this where he calls a wisdom in the relative sense which is such as understanding um, Newton's free laws of motions. You can then derive, you know, a whole bunch of classical mechanics from just understanding those free basic principles. Uh, and that would be a uh, wisdom in a relative sense. So I think he calls everything which is knowledge science, as far okay. as I understood, unless I, uh, unless he, <laughs> he contradicts himself at some point, which I missed. Again, yeah, man, that, that was my impression too, is that all of it would be would be broadly referred to as science, but then he seemed to have a, a further specification. Maybe it's it's a it's a labeling thing. If only he if only he made some kind of diagram that, that clarified that. A <laughs> if, if but only before, he, before we get to that though, I before. do want to talk briefly about about the, the degrees of abstraction that he goes into. Um, because this is something you see a lot and sort of um I think is is worth noting. Mm -hmm. Is that again the the way we derive essences, the way we find out about essences is we abstract them from real things, right? It, 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 yes. The, Human nature doesn't exist as its own thing. It exists in individual people. Um, the the nature of any kind of matter. It doesn't. It's not the essence doesn't exist of itself. It exists specified in matter mm -hmm. for any kind of for any, any material yeah. thing. And so the, there's different modes of abstraction that that the intellect does. Yeah. The first one, which he calls, uh, he says, the ancients called it physica. Mm -hmm. Knowledge of sensible nature is the first degree of abstraction. And this is when the mind considers bodies in their mobile and sensible realities, bodies garbed in their empirically ascertainable qualities and properties. Such an object can neither exist without matter and the qualities bound up with it, nor can it be conceived without matter. So this is when you're basically entirely occupied with the material world. Such a degree of abstraction cannot even conceive of something without the matter associated with it. This is physica, the first degree, what the ancients called physica, I should say, the first degree of abstraction. And this would this would include virtually all the modern what we call hard sciences. So this would incorporate physics, chemistry, um, biology to the extent that it's not dealing with rational beings. Um, so that, that in, in this terminology, if you were looking at if you were studying ants or plants or anything else, this would all be under physica because this is a changeable being um, and nothing and as purely changeable. Yes, that's the other thing I've heard is, is physica is, is, is um, abstraction, is being as changeable being, as material yes. being. Yes, that is actually a very good way to put it in more uh, classical Aristotelian terms instead of 20th century French Aristotelian terms. <laughs> uh, yeah, being as changeable being. Yeah, I think that's how Aristotle actually defines physics, correct? Right, I, I, think, I think so. I think so. I mean, at least again, he would have been doing it in the Greek, but I have no idea what, what yes, route yes, it was taken. He, he didn't write in the 21st century English, certainly. <laughs> uh, but yes, that is the first degree of abstraction. Uh, the second one is uh, when the mind considers objects uh, abstracted from and purified of matter. 
insofar as matter is the general basis for the active and passive sensible properties of bodies. In this case, it considers nothing more than a certain property which is isolates within bodies, a property that remains when everything sensible is left aside, quantity, number, or the extended taken in itself. Now, this is the important part. This is an object of thought which cannot exist without sensible matter, but can be conceived without it. For nothing sensible or experimental enters into the definition or the ellipse of a square root. This is the great field of mathematica, knowledge of quantity as such. So uh, you sort of understand why he's using the word abstraction, because abstraction means, if I remember correctly, if I remember my, uh, I can't actually tell if it's Greek or Latin at the moment, but if I remember my ancient languages correctly, abstraction means to cut away from or to cut something out of. So you're essentially cutting everything else that is irrelevant to your consideration, which can be considered immaterially without the sensible matter and then considering that property. So that would be, um, you know, let's say there is a chasm in an ocean, uh, the Mariana Trench. And we can, can sort of consider it as the Mariana Trench as uh, we can sort of draw it as viewed from space on a paper, but then someone can say, what about the depth? And you can, and we can reply, we're not interested in the depth. We're only interested in these squiggly lines to map out the surface. We're only interested in what we can describe in this, in the Cartesian chart mathematically to then get at the root of its surface and so on and so forth without considering the depth because that's irrelevant to our considerations here. That would be the second degree of abstraction with the ancients called Mathematica, knowledge of quantity as such. And so if anyone's familiar with uh, with Aristotle's categories, I don't know if you've if you've read it or touched on it at all, Bulge. I have it here, but I have not read it yet. I have a great, <laughs> I have a, I have a basic work of, works of Aristotle right next to me. So I have it here, but I haven't read it yet. Sure. But in that, so he go, the, the sort of first um, property of uh, substances is quantity. It's the, it's the most fundamental one is that nothing is that doesn't, nothing is physical that doesn't have quantity. And so if you, if you keep quantity and get rid of everything else, so all of its qualities, um, you know, where it is, what it's in relation to all those sort of extra things and just reduce it to quantity, to amount or extension, like he says, that's where math comes from. And you can make it discrete and you can do arithmetic or you can make it continuous and you can do geometry. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And and as as the they've advanced, they sort of have merged together into one thing at the, in the modern level. Um, but that's formally what um, fundamentally what mathematics is, is this it's this understanding of qu the quantity of things abstracted away from from everything else that makes them um, physical substances. And as you as you pointed out very, very, uh, very well, is that the. Quantity doesn't exist outside of matter. You can't have, yes. like we said, you don't. There aren't there aren't fours floating around in the air. Mm -hmm. There aren't perfect triangles. There aren't angles of their, of themselves. They exist in physical things, but we can conceive them as their own things, mm -hmm. and we can do manipulations with them, and we can we can deduce all these all these fascinating consequences of of those objects. But we have to abstract them away from actual matter where they where they where they really exist. Otherwise, they only exist in the mind. Yes, this sort of becomes a, this, this is just an interesting side note, but this becomes a real problem for the Kantians who have, uh, both Roger Scruton, who's a Kantian light, and Hoppe, who is very much a, con uh, you know, a sort of neo-Kantian in his epistemology, sort of run into a problem into what the hell is mathematics? 
because it, <laughs> is it transcendental? Like, where do we get it from? Do we get it from action in the world as a priori category of action or as an a priori category of the mind? And Hoppe sort of leans into the answer that it's uh, that it's uh, you know a category of action that we can only really derive it from. I do one action, then I do another. You know, as you know, he's very much an economic theorist, so mm -hmm. he sort of he leans into that direction. Uh, Scroon sort of leads into the, the direction that Kant's just wrong about this, and Aristotle's right. <laughs> That's sort of the direction he leans into. And Maritano obviously doesn't even consider the Kantians here. He sort of only makes fun of them in the first chapter. Um, <laughs> very beautifully makes fun of it. I wish I had the quote in mind, but I don't. It's it's the proper proper role of, of Kantians in any kind of serious philosophical discussion is you only you bring them up as an aside to to insult <laughs> them and then you just ignore them again. <laughs> I'm one of the few people who likes Kant's comments on beauty and aesthetics, but uh, yeah, that's very true in terms this, of epistemology. Probably our biggest philosophical disagreement is you you think there are things worth reading in Kant, mm -hmm. and I just refuse. <laughs> nope, Aristotle did it better. Kant's yeah. just a, is a is a is our Cartesian in, in philosopher's clothing, and and yeah. should be considered nothing more. Yeah, my favorite uh, Brazilian philosopher recently passed away this year, Olavide Carvalho, also a number Catholic. Uh, he had a great comment. Uh, which he did in one of his online classes, which was, you know, in ancient uh, philosophy, such as Aristotle, Plato, and their students, like such as Xenophon and so forth, uh, you can sort of take away the essence of what they're saying is pretty much correct. And there are certain observations such as, you know, Aristotle's physics and so on that are incorrect in places. And you need to amend those with modern science, empirical observations and more, uh, more knowledge of the empirical world. Essentially, their illustrations are wrong, but their points are correct. Whereas in modern philosophy from Descartes onwards, everything they say in essence is wrong, but they have very interesting observations. <laughs> that is <laughs> <That's>, perfect. <laughs> so you need to so pay attention to, to those observations, but with rare exceptions, you don't need to pay attention to what their, their point is. And I sort of agree with that to a large extent. And I'm going to be obnoxious and pedantic and, and defend Aristotle is that I think his his uh, physics in terms of his, his physica, as he would call it, mm -hmm. is is excellent. His mechanics is garbage, but that's a very much a specification. Like uh -huh. if, we, if we if if we mean physics the way that he meant it originally as physica as the state of changeable being, he makes his, his observations are absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. It's when he actually tries to start making them empirical and tries to do mechanics in particular. Uh -huh. That it kind of falls apart. As we said, for him, physics would include chemistry and biology and botany and everything else. And and so in in, in his own terms, his physics is is fantastic. It's a very minor specification of his physics. That, I mean, his uh, idea of time, or well, his very implicit ideas of time, are probably some of the most prescient observations about the nature of time, as only subject to what is changeable. Uh, in the world and not what is unchangeable such as the unmoved mover and so forth for some of the most prescient observations about the, what the nature of time can possibly be which is another it's a major problem in philosophy I mean Augustine fuck, cracked his head against this for uh, quite a long while in the confessions and sort of gave up with a prayer um, but uh, in a sense he's only echoing Aristotle's comments on it as uh, what what is time after all and which is another major problem for the Kantians. It's less of a problem for Aristotelians, but it's still a very unknown quantity how to even consider time. Mm -hmm. it, but yeah, I think it's some of the most prescient observations in that sense. So he can't have been all wrong about Physica after right. all. Should we get to the third degree of abstraction? Go for it. Okay. So finally, the mind can consider objects abstracted from and purified of all matter. 
In this case, it considers in things only the very being with which they are saturated, being as such and its laws. These are objects of thought which not only can be conceived without matter, but, but which can even exist without it. Whether they never exist in matter, as in the case of God and pure spirits, or whether they exist in material as well as in material things, for example, substance, quality, act and potency, beauty, goodness, etc. This is the wide domain of metaphysica, knowledge of that which is beyond sensible nature or of being as such, the third degree of abstraction. And that's it. Yep. So these, so these are the the degrees of abstraction we start with. We have we have being as changeable, being as quantity, and then being as as being itself. Um, we, so we have things that are that are necessarily material, things that are material but can be conceived as immaterial, and things that are that can be formally immaterial, like you said, God or or substance as such, or beauty or the transcendentals. And he sort of has a very soon afterwards. He has an interesting comment that. Uh, you know, knowledge works in sort of a, the way we, in this way of knowledge, we proceed to wider and wider universals. Uh, you know, this kind of abstraction whereby the mind rises above simple animal knowledge of a singular, proceed by this, by the sense of here and now, hiket nunc, as he writes, and which in reality begins with more general and undetermined notions, is at the root of all human knowing. It is common to all sciences. So, for example, you sort of consider Peter and Paul as individual people, and then you get man from them. And then you sort of examine man as a whole through many Peters and many Pauls, and then you get animal from that, or you get a rational animal, and then you're sort of considering other beings in the world, such as cats and dogs, and then you get catness and dogness with through specific cats and dogs, and then for both of them you get animal, and then you compare that with rational animal, then you only get animal, then you only get animal, and then you also separate the rational from that. So you consider rationality in itself and animality in itself. So every turn of knowledge for the more examination of the physical world and the contingent particular things that are in it, you proceed to wider and wider circles of universals considerations, and then you approach the more immaterial realm, the third degree of abstraction. So the so you can sort of see the reason why he puts this in degrees, because we naturally start with the first degree, sort of proceed to the second degree, and then finally we can proceed to the third, because this is the natural way human knowledge and consideration of things works. And this is the point that he, that he brings up later is the is the role of the senses is is that once once um, even metaphysics sort of has its principles to to work with and you know Aristotle understood metaphysics through understanding things you know you, you can't the, the mind cannot grasp substance or form or matter or any of these things before it sees them in things mm -hmm. right um, which which is the the reason that it, that that uh, the that God is so incomprehensible to us is that we can is that we there is no there is no tangible connection that we can make we can only sort of make him know him I don't want to say analogically but as he says there's things that exist only immaterially and so those we have to we have to work a lot harder at um, versus things that are immaterial but can exist in things mm -hmm. but we we so I'm, I'm I'm rambling too much we know those things first in what we see them in we know substance because we need see substances yes. And uh, he actually has a, a, a small paragraph sort of uh, summarizing uh, the way this thing works. So I, I'll read that instead of giving my own. If a figure of speech can be permitted here, let us say that the work of the intellect can be compared to an immaterial magic. 
from the flux of singular and contingent things as given to the apprehension of the sense, a first glance of the intellect reveals the world of corporeal substances and their properties. That's the first degree, the first glance. A second glance reveals quite another universe, the ideal world of the extended number. Second degree, Mathematica. A third glance discloses still another wholly different universe, the world of being as being and all the transcendental perfections common to spirits and bodies, wherein we can attain purely spiritual realities and the very principle of all reality as in a mirror. And that's how he sort of summarizes it, how the, uh, how the work of the intellect work is, how it proceeds forth to higher and higher degrees and how it attains more and more knowledge. Mm-hmm. All right. Is, is it time for the, for the diagram? Let me see. Do I have any more notes? Oh no, it's like a uh, one page and a half away. So yeah. I, unless so, unless you want to talk about point thirteen, uh, we can go on to the table of sciences. Yeah. So let me let me try and set this up a little bit while you bring it up. So um, Maritain wants to sort of explain uh, his his view of the sciences. That's going kind to of set up um, his critical realist view and the proper role of these different degrees of abstraction in terms of our of our intellect and our understanding in science and philosophy and goes to to quite some some detail over several pages trying to flesh this out but because he is a he is a, a teacher first and foremost he uh, he has a helpful uh, visual aid to to describe this relationship which makes things much more clear let me see if i can turn this on now <laughs> <laughs> so this is what he presents as his table of science. Uh, Bolge and I discussed this in, mm-hmm. in some detail, and and I think you said you just sort of gave you you looked at it once, gave up on it, and just read his description. <laughs> I um, mean, I looked at the arrows over. I don't know if you can see my mouse. Can you see my cursor? We can, yes. Or no? Okay, so I yeah, sort I of looked at, <laughs> at these moderns' attraction towards the mathematics and ancients' attractions towards metaphysics, and <laughs> I looked at the second degree, and then the first and third are on the other side, and then I sort of gave up and just read his explanation, which makes way more sense <laughs> than this table. <laughs> we, we, so I think you've commented previously, he has another, um, I can't remember the name of it, but there's ways of knowing God or some such, but he, he's, he frequently decides that, that he needs to add tables or figures to his discussion and they never seem to be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They only confuse the reader. I think I took a week to understand the table in uh, ways of knowing God. Eventually I understood it and I was like, okay, this is sort of helpful as a, now that I understand it as a mnemonic device for uh-huh. sort of picturing the first cause. Uh, sort uh, sorry, of uh, Aquinas's uh, first way of knowing God, because that's what the that table in that book is for. <laughs> and so I sort of okay, I can sort of actually understand it because he's separating the you know uh, a series in time from a hierarchical series, and he sort of puts one above the other, and I can sort of picture it. And in time, every po- every act that needs to be supported in itself by something that is pure act or else it won't be supported because it's purely contingent and so on. And I sort of understand it, but you need to read way more deeply into act and POTUS in distinction. than he goes in into that book, which is just a great way of doing diagrams. And that's, that's sort of where I ended up on this one is, is reading his extensive discussion of what's in the figure. I can, I probably can't do it now, but at the time I could sort of make sense of what was in there. But the actual figure itself didn't aid any of my understanding, as best I could tell. Okay, so you can sort of make sense of it in chunks. I cannot make sense of it as a whole. 
which is interesting to me. But in chunks, for example, uh, if you can see my cursor, this part here on the right, uh, where he sort of classifies science and philosophy, you can, if you just consider that and ignore the rest, that is actually a pretty good summary of what we've been saying so far. Uh, what he does go into in his explanation of his table is what he is classifying as physical mathematics as scientia, uh, what does he call it? Essentially mediating science. That is what mediates the empirical with the mathematical because, you know, physics when considered as a, with maths as modern physics very much is it's actually a great discovery because we can very much uh, explain regularities in nature way better than we could in aristotle's day with mere words i mean try describing a cubic or quartic equation with words with like x uh, x to the power of four plus seven x to the power of three plus 24 x to the power of two plus uh, x plus k plus seven k K being a, an unknown quantity. Sure. Try try describing that with pure words and saying what that is and what each x is, and then using that to resolve an equation and find out what the x is and so on and so forth. Because that's what people really had to work with before ma modern mathematical notation and before Descartes. You really didn't have a Cartesian uh the Cartesian graph, and so you were you know you were out of luck when you were trying to describe geometrical figures and assign uh, equations to it. And it's so interesting if you I can actually read some of the the writing around that time, even even as they started to start to develop it. Like if you read Newton in the in the Principia Naturalis, he's still trying to do that. Like they have the mathematical tools, but they are still trying to write these things out. And as a modern, it is impossible to read because they will take a paragraph and a half to do what like currently like a, a, a sufficiently advanced high schooler would just write down as yeah. a single equation as in one line and be like, "Yep, I get that." <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly uh i actually had a, a math and physics teacher once told me uh you know if you're interested in reading the principia do not read the principia versus like modern rewritings of it you just read those because <laughs> you're gonna get stuck really quickly um but yes this is actually really helpful to understand okay i can actually picture instead of like trying to memorize his explanations or oh i sort of forgot his explanation i can just go to this graph and i can, can consider this mm -hmm. and you know Going by the numbers, I can look at first degree, second degree, and third degree. I cannot. And uh, the second degree, he sort of he says that he separates it because it's a wholly different kind of degree. It's only considering quantity in a specific sense, and it's not actually uh, resolved in sensible being or resolved in being as being, and that's why he's separating it. But I don't know what that means in this case. Why is it next to the chart of uh, the hierarchy of, of sciences and philosophy? I don't know. What is what is this in the center? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's about as far as I can go with this first diagram. He has a few others in this chapter. They're a little bit simpler. But so something I wanted to focus on a bit, I wanted to get your your feeling of this, because this is something that I think the, the diagram at least might not explain well, but we can show it very well, is you've got Physica there on the left, and it splits down into empirical science. There's an arrow going down to empirical science at the bottom, and the, what he calls philosophy of nature up at the top. Mm -hmm. um, and and again, going back to what Physica formal, um, fundamentally is, and this is this understanding, this abstraction of being as changeable being. Mm-hmm. He is calls it sensible being here. Sensible being, yeah. yes, yes. But changeable, but sensible being is naturally 
changeable. He doesn't specify this in this chapter, but you know, that's one of the reasons God can't be material because it's sensible because sensible being is always subject to change and is therefore right. changeable being. Yeah. I should, I should be cautious and, and, and stick to his terminology. But like you said, they're, it's, they're the it's, same thing. <laughs> yes. They're interchangeable. If you understand what he's talking about. Right. But something I find is interesting is, is what he has in, in philosophy and philosophy of nature is still part of physica. And then the philosophy of nature he describes is, is actually trying to, to ontologically understand what things are. So this is, this would be the essence of physical things is both is a philosophy of nature, but it's also a part of physica. And it's not a part of physica that we really do anymore. Like you said, it's this sort of physico mathematical approach to um, a lot of the pure sciences has gotten rid of philosophy of nature as an idea. Is, yes, is, he talks he, about this. He yes, actually, there's, there's a good footnote mm -hmm. by from, oh, I can't, go ahead. I'm going to look for the footnote. Uh, yeah, you can try to find the footnote. So he talks about this. He actually, uh, you know, he doesn't immediately rail against it as I, I would expect many more, you know, I'd expect Fazer, for example, someone like Edward Fazer, to immediately start railing against this and then make a quick, you know, a quick digression and say, actually, this is actually really useful uh for classifying regularities in nature but you know the, the i need to front load these problems so you understand because you're steeped in this i don't know if things were slightly different in the 30s but he starts out with a quick apologia saying this is actually an incredible discovery by descartes and the other mathematicians and scientists around uh, the 15th 16th century because it allows us to classify regularities in nature better than we ever could before and to you know comprehend them through the use of mathematics uh, better than anyone else before this time period really could and describe them and teach them better. Uh, but the problem is that uh, people have sort of run away with it and put it and replaced it as philosophy of nature and even sometimes as metaphysics itself. But there are several obvious problems with it. I, you know, we barely need to go on into this because it's so obvious. But for example, you know, if whenever you're doing a method such as a physical mathematical method, you sort of need something to justify that method. You, you have an implicit metaphysics behind that. You have an implicit epistemology and an implicit theory of mind, and you sort of can't really describe the mind in mathematical terms. I mean, you can try, and certain attempts have been made, especially in more recent neuroscience, but it all ends up uh, not really even convincing. You sort of end up with the whole, the mind is a, mach is a machine learning AI analogy. Which they don't even say is an analogy. They just say, you know, the mind is a machine learn is a is just a a, a meat AI, right? With machine learning technology. It's a fleshy computer is the yes is the term I've heard. Yes, you you're a meat computer. Yeah, and it's it it's the I think it's the loss of this distinction. And it, and and this is what he's trying to do with this arrow with the the ancients being attracted towards metaphysics and modern's attractions towards mathematics. Is is mm -hmm. the the modern modern physics in particular, the modern science, gets to the physical mathematics and tries to go from that to create a philosophy of nature, and it does it very very poorly because it doesn't have any kind of principles to try and to try and understand essence. In a lot of cases, it denies essence, right? If you if you don't really understand mm -hmm. what a mind is or what the, what the human soul is, then you end up saying these sort of stupid positive positivist things like, okay, yeah, the the mind is just a a really fancy complicated. Um, artificial intelligence network. Yes, but so and, uh, you know, you you get to the point where 
you know, nominalism with uh, physical mathematical things, uh, with physical mathematical relations, barely even functions, if at all, because you sort of get, okay, what are we even quantifying in this equation at all mm -hmm. if, if it's purely nominal, if it's just a name and not even something which we can abstract from in the existing mind? And it's so crazy how much you'll that 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 question sort of gets asked and ignored in, in modern science is there's this sort of shut up and compute mindset that okay we can we can get an answer. <laughs> get shut up and compute. <laughs> so like we've we've made and this is this is progress despite not actually understanding what he would you know, this is explanatory science. You know, the, the ultimate goal of science was to is to know essences. And they there you can't ever really get away from essences, but they but they do it they implicitly try to. And that's mm -hmm. why you end up having the having a, a an understanding that is just completely nonsense. But so here's the thing that I wanted to, wanted to ask about: what your thoughts on? Yep. Because we we have a philosophy of nature which that is not itself metaphysics, right? We are understanding the the essence mm -hmm. of physical things. Um. But so my question, or what I want to pose to you, is you mentioned an article last time, um, where someone was trying to decide if some kind of sea creature or plankton or something like that was a, was a substance or not. Yes, siphonophores. Uh, it was an article by David Oderberg, who mm -hmm. Edward Fazer heartily recommends every chance he gets on his Twitter. So that means he's, he's actually very good. Um, real, essentialism is, real essentialism is his treatise. He is, uh, by his name, I assume he is a Catholic convert uh, from a Jew, Jewish family. Um, but I know he is a Catholic convert or at least an Anglican because he does call uh, Thomas Aquinas Saint Aquinas. Right. And he quotes and he quotes Paul as the apostle uh, in one of his author papers. But yes, it was uh, a, to what it was trying to classify metaphysically what a siphonophore is. Is it a colony of animals, as many scientists have said, or is it one animal or as many other scientists, such as uh, uh, J, uh, Stephen Jay Gould and others have classified, is it something in between a colony and an animal? And he objects to that on metaphysical principles, saying that that makes no sense, uh, that that doesn't exist, that's nonsense, we need to actually resolve this question. And he weighs in into that it is one animal by examining mm -hmm. each of its parts, concluding whether it can actually be an independent animal working in a colony-like fashion, or whether it is uh, just a part a function towards a specific thing. So here's the, here's the th excellent summary. Here's the question I want to raise to you because you keep referring to that as metaphysical, and I would mm -hmm. argue, based on on at least by Maritain's understanding of the these degrees of abstraction, is that he's not doing metaphysics. He is doing physics. He's he is firmly lodged in physica. He's in the philosophy of nature. He's not doing empirical physics. Yes, but it, but it is very much that distinction of is what is the substance or what, which of these things is a substance? Is it one substance? Is it many substances? Is it a part of a substance? is not itself a metaphysical question. It is very much a question for physics, properly understood. Would you it agree with that? Yes, I would agree that it's a philosophy of nature question. Right. I would say that it needs the metaphysical principles. And so David Oderberg, who probably has a different classification system than Maritain, uh -huh. calls it a metaphysical because he's trying to say what is the real substance of this creature? Mm -hmm. Is it one? Is it many? Is essentially what he's trying to say. This is a this is a question for physics, properly speaking, because it's the essence yeah. of, a, of a changeable thing, which is the object yeah. of physics. But it's not what phys but because uh David Oderberg is a modern analytical philosopher mm -hmm. who is a, who happens to be a scholastic and an Aristotelian, he sort of is using modern terminology. Sure. But I would agree with you. By Maritain's uh categories, which I think are more useful for a detailed study, it would be philosophy of nature and it would not be metaphysics as such. 
metaphysics would be arguing, okay, what is the world of forms? Does the world of forms exist? How does it work? Is it a divine intellect or is it just a different world? Does the divine intellect exist? Is there such a thing as an unmoved mover? So essentially uh, the debates between an agnostic like Graham Oppie and uh, you know Edward Fazer, uh, a Catholic metaphysician, mm-hmm. about the existence of God and the ontological argument and the unmoved mover argument and whether uh, we can conclude certain metaphysical uh, points about each of these arguments or whether they're insufficient, uh, that would be metaphysics as such. Everything else would be the philosophy of nature using metaphysics uh, as a crutch, which it needs, which might argue. You need metaphysics to even say what a what a substance is per yes, se. Yes, of course, of course. And then and then to determine what things are, what particular things are substances would be would be physics using that metaphysical insight. But I just think that's very interesting because I think that's something that confuses a lot. It's because I think Meritian is right in this classification as if you're as, as mm-hmm. there is a difference between looking at, at the essences of physical beings and looking at at um, being as such. So that if you, even if you're talking about essences, if you're talking about very philosophical ideas, is this a substance? Is this like, you know, what what is a, even the question, you know, what is a man? What is a rational animal? The rational part kind of screws with it a little bit because because our rationality is immaterial. But yes, these, are, yeah. these, are, these are probably questions for physica mm-hmm. um, and, and physics or biology or, or whatever proper science to them. Again, we've lost that in the modern era. The, mm-hmm. the modern sort of stop that you get to this mathematics level and you describe things uh, phenomenologically, and then you sort of give up on saying what it, what essences are, you know, that they exist, because you, like you said, they become nominalists, they become positivists. Um, yeah, for for viewers, I can pose this, uh, I can actually pose two questions, one of which is uh, metaphysics as such, the other which is philosophy of nature, using this siphonophore study as a as sort of an example. Uh, keep it in mind. So a uh, metaphysical question would be, what is substance? Does it exist? The philosophy of nature question would be, once you settled that, what kind of substance is this? What are the categories of substance to which this applies? And so on. To which this particular thing in the world applies, that is. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was, I wanted to just put that out there because again, it, I think it is, I think... Yeah, and may, may, I don't know how relevant it actually is, but the I'm I want I'm a pedant for this kind of thing that we we properly yes. distinguish what what um what abstraction we are using because like I said if you're if you're trying to do science or if in in this broader sense there is a relationship between physical phenomena and their essence right that's how no we, that's it's how we know important their, to their see essence. if we agree or disagree with my response classification of philosophy of nature mm-hmm. is distinct from metaphysics and and I think in terms of describe like you know what what the the role of empiricism is you know empiricism can do a lot more to describe philosophy of nature than it can metaphysics right mm-hmm. but we get very very fundamental things from our empirical from empirical science to talk about metaphysics right we see I, things exist change exists substances exist and the metaphysics sort of takes off on its own but the the sort of more specialized insights of empirical science tell us about their nature right you know einstein's theory of relativity tells us something about the nature mm-hmm. of moving bodies I mean, yeah, in uh, in that specific paper, which I referenced, uh, Stefano Ford's A Metaphysical Case Study, look it up if you want, by David Oderberg, um, he sort of goes in very deeply into the science of the function of each siphon up part. Is it an animal? Can it be an animal? What do we consider an animal? Um, what are the scientific classifications for it? Uh, what are the metaphysical warranties for what, an, for what animality constitutes? And there's a lot of empirical study uh, involved. He cites a lot of empirical studies and mm-hmm. siphonophores uh, to prove his point. So in that case, of course, it, it would be philosophy of nature as such instead of metaphysics as such. 
And this is something that sort of that I, I, I disagree with Maritan a little bit. He gets into this later because he's very content to say, okay, you know, like um, the, the, what he would call the observational sciences have moved in this physical mathematical direction. We can leave them to it. It sort of frees up other things to, or frees up metaphysics because the, the historical tradition would be very much like what we talked about with Oderberg is, is, is people would try and use, scientists would use empiricism to try and discover natures. Right, mm -hmm. the, the the original name for a lot of these things was natural philosophy. Yes, right? it was very much a philosophical discipline, and I think it is a it is a real loss for science and for understanding that we've lost this. That we've tried to that we that we don't do more of the things that Oderberg is doing. That there isn't more effort to try and to try and can, to try and derive philosophical truths. I say philosophical, not metaphysical truths. Um, physical truths about about essence. Um, from the empirical instead of just leaving the empirical as sort of these mathematical relationships that we don't end up doing much with. And Meriton's very happy with that state of affairs. And I'm, I'm not, I think there needs to be a lot more, more Oderberg in the, in, even in physics. You know, yes. In, in yeah. Modern Oderberg physics. is principally a, a phaser is more of a physics guy. If you mm -hmm. read, read uh, Aristotle's revenge, he's very much more focused in physics. Brian Davies, who never scholastic and Catholic is focused in chemistry. And uh, Oderberg is a, uh, I think by profession, a bioethicist, a professor right. of, bio, of bioethics. But uh, so he's very much focused in biology. Uh, but Maritain does have a slight concession to this, I suppose, if we can call it that, where he calls every higher discipline is regulative with respect to its inferiors. So he's not at all uh, <laughs> afraid of calling uh, science as, uh, as science inferior to metaphysics. Continuing, he says, since metaphysics considers the highest reasons for being, it will, as a result, be the regulating science par excellence. But, but mathematics is also a deductive science, a science of the proper quid, the proper, uh, the proper thing itself. Quid, I think, would be thing. It will also tend to rule the lower sections of knowing, if not to encroach upon metaphysics itself. We thus understand the struggle for dominion so often engaged in by these two sciences in the course of history. So that actually, that actually, I think, is a slight reply to your criticism of him and also to the other question he had about whether he classifies all of these as sciences. It seems that he does actually classify both meta metaphysics and mathematics as sciences in themselves. And that just makes this figure even more confusing because on the far right there, he has philosophy and science as distinct things. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> I can't, I can't defend him on that the, one. The, the the figure is just so unhelpful. Oh, I goodness. think he's using science uh, equivocally, and that yeah. means I don't. Maybe it's not even analogically. He is using it equivocally, and I mm -hmm. don't equivocally at least in Portuguese. If I you say equivocal, which is the Portuguese translation of it, it means a mistake. You're using the word in the wrong sense. So I don't mean that, but he is using the word in two different senses. Here. Yes. He is using science as something which you know as scientia and science as what is terminologically classified as science in the modern mm -hmm. world. Which does, yeah, this, this, is why, this is why he can be confusing. And again, I, I'm going to blame the, even though he, he credits the translation as being fantastic, I'm going I'm to say it works better than the original French. Although, can you imagine looking at this diagram in French? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> uh, the translation in the written parts, at least, is very good. Oh I'm no, not no sure I, they... I, 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 it's tongue in cheek when I blame the translation. Yes. But when there's when there's when there are word uses like that 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 require some specificity and it seems to be lacking them, I'm, I, yeah, okay. Um, we need to get moving, or we're gonna be we're gonna be going like three hours in this thing. Um, any other comments you have on uh, related to his, his table of science? Or we want to move on to to science yes. and philosophy. 
first diagram, no. I have the other diagrams here. Second one, as you can see here. Tell me when you want to get to it. I'll stop sharing if you... Yeah, let me go ahead and I can, I can switch that off for you. Yeah, I'll stop sharing the screen then. Okay. Perfect, perfect. Um, What's the next part you want to get into? So, yeah, so the ne next major area is the is science of philosophy. It's, it's it's section three of this chapter. Uh, mm -hmm. So starting with uh, with point paragraph or I say paragraph paragraph fifteen. Um, let me and, try and get to it. Let's see. Oh, and yep, then he gets that. His, his uh, we can if you have anything there, but also we can talk about his his clarification on when he starts talking about facts. Oh, I do actually have something on facts, but if you okay. want, but you let's, should probably let's, get let's, into go, this. let's go to there. Let's go and go on to facts. Uh, is there anything interesting? I'm trying to skim through it if there's, cause I didn't take, okay. So, uh, okay. So the only thing which I did highlight in this was again, another, uh, instance of how he describes the mind works in terms of knowledge. So it's the last, uh, it's the last pair, the last sentence before point 16, if you can see it for the mind will always and necessarily raise questions of a higher order and strive to penetrate into the purely intelligible the purely intelligible being the purely immaterial as he said as he says earlier so uh, i'll actually read the whole paragraph because it might make more sense for viewers because i highly highlighted this for myself so <laughs> truth to tell scientific explanations do not reveal the very being of things since they explain only proximate causes, or even that kind of formal cause, which is the conformity of phenomena to mathematical law, and such more or less arbitrarily constructed entities fashioned as a support for this type of law. They can never satisfy the mind, for the mind will always and necessarily raise questions of a higher order and strive to penetrate into the purely intelligible. So I do, there is a slight criticism of him that one can make here is that uh, if one considers this as a psychological tendency, we can very easily say this is not true in the sense that many people are actually very much satisfied with the physical mathematical <laughs> and are content to never move beyond it at all. In fact, the evidence is all around us today, and he sort of criticizes this later. So he's sort of saying that you know they can't satisfy it, so you can sort of take we have to take it in another sense to make sense of what he's saying that it can never satisfy the mind uh fully you're always going to end up with other questions that you can't answer and you're just going to have to shrug your shoulders i think is what he's trying to say here so i would i would argue a little bit as, as that as much as um moderns are content to rely on the mathematical they do try and make up ontology still like i mean you, mm -hmm. you, you and that's this is why a lot of these sort of famous paradoxes when you talk about schrodinger's cat or when you know you'll have these very bizarre arguments about people about whether or not time exists i remember i i think uh, i think it was caleb posted the poll about um what is it type a and type b time whether or not time is a real thing or phenomenological or whatever mm -hmm. is that is that people do try and build ontologies and build these philosophies and natures and this metaphysics out of the the physica mathematica uh, they just do a really bad job, but they still they still ask for those explanations. They just mm -hmm. want they they want equations to give them those explanations, and they do a very, and equations do a very poor job of explaining things. Yes, because they don't have they they lack most of the causes. Like they have yeah. they have formal causality, but they don't have material causality. They don't have efficient causality. They certainly don't have final causality. And so you have a very you have a very uh, a messed up kind. Actually, of... yeah, yeah, you're correct. I sort of interpreted him wrongly. I I, I sort of assumed that he was saying that the mind. Uh, would try to penetrate, would necessarily go, would 
on its own with these questions go into the material. But what he's really saying is that it will necessarily raise questions of a higher order. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's just true. If the you know you're gonna going to end up with questions of a higher order, you're gonna you're usually if you just rely on the physical mathematical, end up with nonsense. And so you can sort of say that that is a striving to penetrate into the purely intelligible, but because of some psychological block, the mind of the modern mind has a habit of not doing such. Mm-hmm. And I think this also ties in nicely, again, if, if assuming sort of a, a well-ordered um, intellect to what he goes into in chapter one, talking about the, the poverty of metaphysics is that the, the, eventually those higher order questions become metaphysical and become um, foundational in the sense of, the, of, 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 of striving to know ultimately uh, what made us. Mm-hmm. And, and and we can we keep trying those harder questions, and at some point metaphysics fails to do that. <laughs> uh, yes. and, and this will this will hopefully I'm I'm excited to get to it. Prompt sort of part two where he talks about revelatory knowledge and and super rational knowledge, mm-hmm. um, because those those are the, those are even higher order than metaphysical questions, right? But um, base I call it base metaphysics can't answer all of the own questions that it poses, right? It, it can't ultimately tell us everything that we would like to know. And so we have to strive for higher order things. And this is one, one could argue in a, in a more um, cynical way that this is, this is what gives rise to religion is that we, we metaphysics sort of tells us what it can and, and demands higher uh, level questions that it can't answer. And then so in someone saying religion gets created to answer those questions, um, a good Catholic would say, you know, we have divine revelation to help us answer these questions. Mm-hmm. But that it I is mean, this... one can very easily say that without the divine revelation, you know, pagan religions, uh, such as you know, even Hinduism, which certain thinkers such as Adva, uh, what's his name, Adi Shankara, the creator of the Advaita Vedanta sect of Hinduism, did actually reach the conclusion that the being itself, uh, the Godhead, is triune. It mm-hmm. is one in three. It is, uh, I believe, Atman, Krishna, and Brahman are free are one soul wearing free masks is what he says right. in his commentaries of the Bhagavad Gita. So there is, and then, you know, you can sort of, you know, say that if you really want to go with this, that other religions or many religions do actually show this striving to penetrate into the purely intelligible. And maybe even, you know, I think St. Aquinas has some comment where he says, you know, God will not let people perish without hearing the gospel to the extent that he will even use angels to announce it to a single man in an island who has never heard of it before, uh, mm-hmm. if necessary for his salvation. So you can sort of also say that in a sense, which makes sense. Uh, sure. But that, but you do need some form, some form of revelatory knowledge to even get to that conclusion about the the unmoved mover who we call God. Right. Oh, this is fun. <laughs> All right. So what do you have next? Do you want to get on to fact see. again? I'm, I, I don't want to rush us too much, but I also want to. I don't want us to uh, to drag on too long if we're yeah because uh, there are because this part because there's a lot of parts which sort of uh I think the next part point sixteen uh he sort of is clarifying stuff that he already said if I remember correctly I didn't highlight anything in point sixteen I only started highlighting mm-hmm. again in point seventeen and then which includes the which is very near to point eighteen because seventeen is very short where he goes on into the clarifications on the notion of fact. So you said you had a point on fact that you wanted to bring up? Uh, so just before, I have okay. uh, two underlines. There is two where he's sort of uh, clarifying uh, where I've already talked about this, but I'll just read this because this is two sentences. It's the beginning and end of the last paragraph of point 17. 
there is, to be sure, a great material dependence of philosophy on the sciences. In the first place, within the hierarchy of knowledges, philosophy is like culminating point, one that consequently comes last pedagogically. And then the last sentence, to imagine that philosophical doctrines have to be changed with every scientific revolution would be as absurd as to think that the soul is transformed with every change of diet. Which I think is a good uh, a good analogy and a good uh, reductio ad absurdum of uh, doctrines which say otherwise. Mm -hmm. No, I think so. That's all that I had highlighted. It is. I've already mentioned this earlier too. It's a nice uh, refutation of of Kuhn's ideas. Is that you know there and which should be fairly obvious is there there is something that is sustained knowledge wise even through these these revolutions in our understanding. Mm -hmm. There are still first principles. There are still fundamental things that we do know to be true and if we can even if we haven't made them explicit um mm -hmm. that you can have conclusions that were that were not well justified that you sort of took as given and then they can be either further specified or better refined or, or modified but you still have the those philosophical truths and that includes the 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 philosophy of nature right if we've if we've correctly um deduced the the nature of something New empirical data isn't going to change that, right? We're not going to have new empirical mm -hmm. data show us that man is, in fact, not a rational animal, <laughs> right? There's there's no amount of empiricism that's going to show that because it's been properly deduced from the things that we've seen. And we, we have a proper understanding of that philosophical knowledge. Mm -hmm. From proper experience itself, mm -hmm. you know, how you're, yeah, you can't really falsify proper experience itself of nature with other experience of right. nature. It's sort of, a, it's sort of a contradiction in terms, yep. even. <laughs> oh, and this yeah. is... Uh, Slightly related, there's another point I wanted to, I wanted to this, this is probably just petty of me, but I wanted to go back to the conversation that I was having with our mutual friend um, who was insisting that, that physical knowledge was by its nature inductive. And I want to, and, and my, my point being, like we were talking about with this philosophy of nature is, is properly understood philosophy of nature, which is still part of, of um, physica, is deductive, right? We, could, we are still deducing properly that man is a rational animal. This is not an inductive proof that we make that we haven't, mm -hmm. we don't, we don't see 50 men and see they're rational and then, and then induce and, and determine that number 51 is also going to be rational. We understand deductively something about the nature of, of essence or the nature of yes, man of, is essence. Of what it is to be a man. Yes. And then we and can then, say that everything that conforms to the type man is therefore a rational animal. Right. And this is necessarily true and deductively true. So uh, take that person that probably isn't listening to this. Maybe he will, um, but that I was arguing with previously. I'll send it to him. <laughs> <laughs> He's not on Twitter right now, but I'll send it to him either way. I'll find somehow some way to do it. Oh, well, it's fine. I'll, I'll bother another mutual friend to see if he can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll clip this. <laughs> uh, do you I, feel so, I feel so petty. Please, please, please move <laughs> yeah. on. Want to move on then? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So clarifications on the notions of fact. So the only thing I've highlighted this entire section, so then you'll need to help me through it, is uh, his very first definition of what is a fact. Uh, so I'll just read it. It's uh, two sentences. What then is a fact? It is a well-established existential truth. A certain connection in the objects of our concepts exists in the real that very fact implies that this existence confronts a mind. And then he goes on to clarify what this means for the mind itself, which is actually a very interesting discussion. Do you want me to just read the, the rest of this? If you want to just finish the paragraph, sure. 
Sure, that very fact uh, that something is a well-established existential truth and exists uh, in connection in the objects of our concepts and exists in the real, so there's a connection between those, implies that this existence confronts a mind, the existence itself, something which is in being, confronts a mind which can grasp therein those objects. So there is an object out there, then there is a mind that can somehow, through some mechanism, grasp these objects. A fact engaging human knowledge is not created by the human mind. A stone is not given to a stone. A fact, a fact is given, but it is given to someone. And if it is given, it is received. A stone is not given to a stone. A fact is given to a mind. That is to say, it is discerned and judged. To conceive it as a pure and simple copy of the external real, devoid of any discrimination, is a deceptive simplification due to the unconscious materialism of the imagination. So if you're not aware, this is essentially a him railing against uh, Hume's idea of empirical knowledge. Hume and Locke, really. Mm -hmm. Maybe even more Locke, although that might be because of actually read Locke and not really engaged not with Hume. Not Hume, yep. Yeah, uh, where in very much, uh, you know, the imagination, First, imagination and intellect are the same thing for a human lock. So I'll just say locks because I don't want to badmouth Hume, but Phaser and others say, say Hume copies the same formula. Where the imagination and intellect is the same thing, and therefore everything the intellect receives is essentially a phantasm of the senses in the imagination. So it's every so it's this pure and simple carbon copy of the senses into the imagination. But you can sort of say that that you know, Maraton saying that theory of mind in epistemology is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. It is something which exists in the real, and then the mind apprehends this and forms a connection with it in a concept, and then engages with degrees of abstraction to it, which is implicit here, but he doesn't uh, specify. Sure. And just to, to clarify a little bit for the those who aren't familiar with this, for the Aristotelian idea, and I think I think Maritain certainly subscribes to this, I think both you and I would as well, is that the the imagination is what puts us in contact with with specific knowledge? So it's it's the the images that you get from sense awareness. So things that you see, things that you hear, whereas the intellect puts us in contact with with general knowledge. It's it's the it's how we know ideas, um, or I should say, I, I, ideas are the object by which we know things in general. Mm -hmm. So even a, a a higher mere animal would have an imagination, as in as much as he can he can you know handle his sense knowledge. A mere animal by definition would not have an intellect because he doesn't know mm -hmm. generals. He doesn't. He doesn't know essences. Exactly. Hopefully, yeah. that, hopefully that clarifies. Yeah. There's also there's further divisions of the intellect. Uh, Anscombe has a famous paper, a few famous mm -hmm. papers actually, uh, sort of uh, rebutting David Hume's uh, theory of causation, which mm -hmm. is essentially that causation is pure probability based on empirical observation as sort of insane on its face from the theory of mind point of view, because yep. that's not how the intellect works, because you can't actually conceive, you can maybe imagine something coming into being without a cause, but then uh, how does that thing come into being? Is it being teleported or is it being created? And if it's being created, that then is part of its essence and so forth and so on. If that's part of its essence, then, you know, if that's causing it to appear in middle of nowhere, and that's part of the intellect. The imagination can just imagine a, you know, a rabbit popping up on your table, but the intellect, if it goes deeper and questions these things, can't. It sort of needs to understand what these things are and what is happening. Mm -hmm. It's a more, uh, the imagination is essentially, is closer to the phantasms in your mind, sort of just a putting mental pictures up the intellect is needs to understand and conceive properly of these mental pictures if that makes any sense 
Yeah, it needs to understand causation and, and essence, essentially. Like, right? it's, it's, it's what's grasping essence. It's, I really, it's, it's shocking to me that these sorts of, I think, very articulate, very well thought out takedowns of what I would essentially call Cartesian idealism, right? And I think this, mm -hmm. is, this is the essence of a lot of these, of, of Humean or, or um, Kantian thought just get get eviscerated i think so effectively by people that can actually express scholastic or aristotelian Thomistic views effectively that they still are sort of the the dominating force um philosophically in the world is just is mind-boggling to me because we have we have such a, a more clear and correct view that that can effectively eviscerate them and existed well before them and it is not is not the common understanding of the world drives me a little bit crazy yeah, Kant is a more difficult animal to tackle because he purposefully, his philosophy is, his critical philosophy, his critiques are both a response to Hume and uh, Descartes and Leibniz. So mm. it's between empiricism and rationalism, and he's purposefully threading a, a middle ground between, between what he sees as the two possible extremes in philosophy, because to him, that was basically philosophy. You know, it was right. everything from the 1500s on. And so his, he, you know, he's a more complex animal to tackle in this sense, because he sort of has more interesting observations about the mind and the intellect than, uh, uh, than uh, Descartes and Hume do. Uh, but he, you know, he sort of gets away from himself very, very early on and very quickly. Mm -hmm. So what else do you have on this? Because there's plenty else which I, I didn't highlight because I just sort of read through so and forgot to. The, the one other thing I want to mention is the, the, the first line of, of uh, point 19 where it says, the error mm -hmm. of the idealists is at the same time to challenge the primordial value of sense intuition. Um, in one way or another, every existential apprehension originates in this intuition, even when the fact in question transcends the whole order of the empirical and the sensible. And I, I, I love this because I think it's... Yes, um, it's again, very when, good. When I, when I eventually actually get around to writing on on materialism, it's going to be contrasted to idealism, um, because the the people we've been talking about are very much fundamentally philosophical idealists. Is there is this Cartesian notion about the the trustworthiness of the senses and our ability to receive knowledge through the senses? Again, I think probably related to this this imagination intellect distinction. But that the this this that we do have these well established truths. There are facts that that are that are given to our mind through our sense knowledge. And that's that's the way that we have to start deriving principles from which we can start doing metaphysics. Right? I think you mentioned the, the quote before about about the the absurdity of of trying to base your philosophy on doubt, um, mm -hmm. which is is where we where you end up if you're going to be an idealist fundamentally. Yes. Uh, yeah, the idealists are. I don't know how he's using, if he's using this to refer to Descartes or if he's specifically targeting the German and then English idealists of this time. Because mm -hmm. I know there was a, a famous English idealist who, another Catholic philosopher, Peter Geech, who was a contemporary of Maritain, loves to spar with. Uh, mm -hmm. What's his name? Uh, Ellis MacTaggart, uh, John MacTaggart, something like that. He has MacTaggart twice in his name. I'll just call him MacTaggart then. He's a, the most famous English Hegelian, and he's very much an idealist. So I don't know if he's targeting a... They're both challenge a primordial value of sense intuition because idealists sort of think that our necessary ideas uh, condition uh, the world that as we perceive them, and therefore we only need to sort of a priori... We only need to sort of pay attention to the a priori synthetic and then move on from there, if I can be uh, allowed to make such a crude caricature 
of them because they write, you know, Maritan is already a relatively difficult read by the way he writes of the German Hegelians and idealists are by far <laughs> worse. If you've ever read, if you ever attempted to read Phenomenology of the Spirit, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, uh, good luck if you ever attempt to. Um, but yes, uh, you know, he sort of, get, Maritan gives a very interesting counterexample here. Where you know, it sort of sums up if you're confused by the previous point about uh, the value of sense intuition towards immaterial and therefore the real nature of things, that the same is true of experience of our own existence. An experience, though it is spiritual, not empirical, supposes a reflection on our own acts, which are usually empirical, though an act of thinking is not. This is true also of our knowledge of God's existence, which is established from visible things. This is something that uh, Arist not Aristotle, sorry, although Aristotle does do this for the unmoved mover argument, that Aquinas does. He always proceeds from the visible towards the invisible. He very much is not a, he doesn't pr uh, proceed from a priori synthetic truths to then establish that therefore God exists. He's not engaging in an ontological argument that is from the very fact that, mind, that we as thinking perceiving beings exist, as minds exist, therefore God exists, which mm -hmm. is something that a, uh, as a rich and interesting tradition, they're all very interesting arguments. So they're quite, they get quite beyond me when they get into modal logic. Uh, sure. There, you know, that's not what that's not the Thomistic way of doing things, right? And uh, this is probably too much of a tangent, but it's it's interesting to know that even the the when you do try and start from the, from the existence of a mind, right? I mean, this, this is what I would call fundamentally Cartesian. It's just that I think therefore I am as you, you have your thinking being as your, as your sort of first a priori knowledge, but the, the knowledge of the self isn't, isn't fundamental, right? You, you even, even that, you know, through physical, through sense knowledge, right? There mm -hmm. has to be, this is the, this tabula rasa idea is that we are blank slates. We don't have ideas innately. We, we receive sense knowledge. And from that, we can start to formulate ideas. So we don't even know that we exist. We don't know ourselves until we recognize that there's a knower that's knowing physical things. There's someone that, that knows sense things out there. Someone, someone saw a flower, someone saw a tree. And then you sort of work back and go, Oh, that's, that's me. There's, there's a mind there yep. that knows those things, but mm -hmm. even, even that fundamental thing, right? So Descartes starting from, I think is not, is not fundamentally correct. He, he's, he senses first, and then he's able to, to reflect on those sense, that sense knowledge. And from that to establish the existence of his mind, I would, I would say that's not even an a priori truth. Yes, yeah, so that's actually the intro. I mentioned before that quote from uh, Olavich Cavalli, the Brazilian philosopher, that there are interesting observations in modern uh, philosophy, whereas you sometimes have to throw away the <laughs> you have to <laughs> yeah. you sometimes have to throw away the bathwater, but try and save the baby if you can. Mm -hmm. uh, where you know in phenomena, in, especially this really starts with Hegel is a, that phenomenon, whereas. Modern philosophy starts recognizing that, wait a minute, you only really realize that you have a mind and what you are in relation to the world, in interacting with the world. Because if you never interact with another human, with another rational animal, how can you, you're, and you're just in the wild, you might not ever even realize that you're a rational animal. I mean, you will engage in rational acts. Mm -hmm. uh, you will economize even, you know, you'll be Robinson Crusoe, but you might never even reflect on that aspect because you'll always be engaging with other animals on the same level as an animal. It's essentially a technical problem, as Hoppe right. puts it, not as um, an intersubjective problem, whereas this is another rational animal with their own point of view. This is someone to whom I am a you, and this is someone who is a you to my eye. 
There is an IU relationship therefore established, and therefore that gives rise to morals, codes of conduct, politeness, so on and so forth. That is an interesting observation that really does start with Hegel and really develops with the phenomenologists of the 20th century, you know, Husserl, Heidegger, um, and interestingly enough, St. Edith Stein uh, mm. uh, in the 20th century. But that is an actually very important observation, but we can sort of uh, brag that the Aristotelians got there first, if we really <laughs> want to. St. Edith Stein certainly thought so. She dedicated her life's project to... To uh, when she became a nun, to proving that you can get from phenomenology to uh, Aristotelian Thomistic principles, and vice versa, you can get from Aristotelian Thomistic principles to all the concepts, to all the correct concepts established by phenomenology. Mm -hmm. I need to read more of this time. Um, should we move on to structure and methods of principle of the principal kinds of knowledge? We can get back to our, our figures yeah, again if you want to. From now on, I have no more notes except the figures. So uh, you take it away. I'll just follow so, your lead. I mean, typically these tend to be pretty uh, self-explanatory. Can you share again so I can? Yes, of course. Uh, present, share screen, uh, window. Where is my notebook? Okay. <laughs> so while these are, I think, probably more... Uh, more intelligible than the than figure one. I actually found these even <laughs> less helpful because there's not a whole lot to them. So what what he's doing here is going through and and um, trying to show the structure of different kinds of knowledge. So he talks about an est and quid est. So the two principal kinds of questions. I'll, I'll read the quote here. Must be kept in mind that every science has to answer two questions. First, the question an est, whether the thing exists, and then the question quid est, what it, it what is its nature? Mm -hmm. Right. So this is this is the uh, first establishing that it's, its existence and then its essence. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's a very basic diagram, which I'm. I don't even know what the squiggly line is. I'm going to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I I actually don't know. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can explain it better. But you know, it's it's actually intelligible as a diagram. Mm. I think maybe his diagrams are his way to prove that immaterial things are more intelligible than material things. I don't know. Maybe that's how he's doing it pedagogically. <laughs> the, the, the diagrams are material and unintelligible. Therefore, his descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I don't know. When you consider the concepts of his words and his propositions, you understand them. But when you consider them as a visualized graph, as a diagram, then you're just lost. <laughs> so the, the idea here with mathematics is, is as I mentioned, is, is the, uh, mathematics is, is abstracted from, from the physical, from the real, right? So we have physical facts. We, we observe quantity in things. We see that there are four or something. We see that something is round. We see that something has three sides, whatever. We abstract that away to, to see the thing that exists, right? Triangleness is a is a property of things that it exists in nature. Three is a property that exists in in combinations of things. You know, there there are holes. There's a hole with parts, right? It can have your hand can have five different fingers on it. You get this. You can abstract five from looking at your hand like that, and that's against the store and est. And then from there, all mathematics does is it can stay at that at that level of abstraction. It doesn't really need to make contact back down with the with the physical. It can mm -hmm. it can it can be informed by the physical. I think that's what the what the what the squiggle is showing us is we can sort of make contact again with with the physical. But mathematics, well, as soon as it has its concepts and sees that they exist, it can just go off to the races, right? You can do analytical continuations and you can discover imaginary numbers. Yes, or, exactly. I was also going to use that example, imaginary numbers. Right. Um, or you know. Um, more complex algebras and group theories and these things that we we don't we no longer see the connection to the sensible but it's it's there 
indirectly, right? We, as soon as we mm -hmm. sort of have our postulates, we write down our axioms, we can just go from there and we no longer need to make contact with the sensible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Logic, which I think would, he would include in mathematics, just the study of logic, just proposition something like sentential and propositional logic. You can sort of run away. You can sort of make nonsense statements and declare if they're valid or invalid and then not care if they're sound, which would mean they connect to reality or not, which mm -hmm. we need empirical testing. You can sort of say they're valid or invalid given this. And you can sort of, you know, you can sort of with very such as, um, you know, let's our, let's make a simple syllogism. The moon is made of cheese. Uh, the only type of cheese in the world is X. Therefore, the moon is made of X. Uh, right. You know, let's say X is common bear or something. Yeah, uh, right. Stuff like that. And that is a valid, that is a valid syllogism. It's not sound because then you need to make contact with the sensible, but it is valid. It mm. makes logical sense. And you can sort of get with extremely complex propositional sentences um, just on this without caring a whit as to whether it's uh, sound or not. And then, you know, Ideally, you'd go back to the realm of the sensible and actually use that um, to understand the sensible better and make sense of what you're observing. But with that apparatus that you can sort of do on your own without paying attention to the sensible. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about mathematics being being um, formal or, or having only formal cause, right? Like you can you can have formally valid logical statements, but there's no there's no the the, the material has been left behind the uh, the efficient has been left behind the final has been left behind we 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 have only the form of the of the proposition in your in the case mm -hmm. of logic, and it's either a formally sound argument or it isn't, and we there's no consideration of whether or not the premises are correct or whether or not uh, you know there's that connection is lost. Um, Okay, yeah, so that's mathematics. Mm -hmm. uh, experimental science, if you want to go to that one. So again, and sure. he's going to differentiate experimental science from philosophy of nature. So again, this is the distinction experimental sciences being just the empirical, as we are not looking at, at essences per se. We are not trying to look at natures. We are trying to establish facts. And this is where you have the big connection to the, the physico-mathematical, as he talks about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, I think this one's fairly straightforward. We start with annex. Yes. We, we see sensible, sensible facts that we there are phenomena that we can observe. And then we can codify them, like you mentioned, into something like Newton's laws of motion, right? We can we can derive and sit there and say, okay, you know, there are massive bodies moving this way. We can discover um, um, uh, inertia or momentum. We can we can have these laws that are in the, in the case of of a lot of the higher of the the more foundational sciences are completely mathematical. Mm -hmm. um, and this takes the place of any kind of understanding of essence, right? We have we have say e equals mc squared takes the place of a of an understanding of any kind of essence it's just entirely mathematical but it's descriptive and then from yes. that the, the the dotted line going back down now we can we can make predictions about other sensible facts like if we know e equals mc squared we can you know build a, an atom bomb and know how much energy it's going to release and that sort of thing mm -hmm. actually yeah as, really a very, the mm -hmm. as a very simple example if you had to do the uh physics sat in recent years which you know in the last five years or so like i had uh, you probably uh, had to study point mass and elliptical orbits. So if you under so assuming that is actually the correct way to calculate orbits and there are no more complications to celestial mechanics, uh, then you can sort of say, oh, wow, that planet is behaving oddly. There must be some other celestial object near it that interferes with its supposed orbit from what we know from experience because that's the only thing that makes sense. sense. Or there is some other fact with mass or something with the planet itself that is different and therefore changes its orbit around uh, the sun for example which is i think how we discovered uh was it neptune or one of the other planets in the solar system was actually a hypothesis because it was interfering with another planet's orbit 
That if I remember correct. correctly. I think you're correct. I don't remember which one it was, but yeah. Yeah. No, I barely remember. I don't even, I'm not even sure I remember all the planets in the solar system. I'll be completely <laughs> honest. Okay. Um, so then philosophy of nature and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and dive into it now. Cause I want to, I want to make sure we're talking about this a little bit is, is he again, very much sees this very clear divide between the experimental sciences and philosophy of nature and, and doesn't see the, the physical mathematica as a tool to, to give you philosophies of nature. And, no, and I, and, and most, I was, I would say, um, modern science would more or less agree with him. He has a, a quote, I think it's right around here from uh, Poincaré, who is, let me see it. Yeah. Who talks about the object of mathematical theories. This is footnote 49. The object of mathematical theories of physical phenomenon is not to reveal to us the true nature of things. That would be an unreasonable claim. Their sole aim is to coordinate the physical laws that are made known to us by experiment, but with which we could not even express without the aid of mathematics. It is of little importance to us whether I, whether ether really exists. Uh, this is the this is the uh, luminiferous ether that that uh, Einstein kind of managed to shoot down with with special relativity. Mm -hmm. That is the concern of metaphysicians. Again, I would argue it's the, it's the concern of physicists that are doing philosophy of nature, of natural philosophers and not metaphysicians, but this is the, the, my, my pedantry with the language. Uh -huh. um, as far as we are concerned, he concludes, the essential point is that everything happens as if it did exist. So, but, um, so this is, again, this is Poincaré in the, in the 1900s, back when they, when they were still searching for the ether and were very confident that it was there. Um, but I think it, it is naive or, or um, unsatisfactory to the sciences to sit there and say, okay, we're going to develop our mathematical laws and very much give up on, on what he's doing in this diagram with philosophy of nature, that the, that the physical, physical mathematical can't tell us more about it, right? So for philosophy of nature, we have, we discovered sensible facts. This tells us something about essences. You know, we talked earlier about how you sort of derive that, that man is a rational animal. Um, and then once you have these essences, you can start or, or you see that okay that man is a, is a thing there is a substance that is man you can start talking about what he is and that happens entirely at the intellectual level right it, it only it only um tangentially makes uh new contact with sensible, sensible fact um as you discover new things about man right you see that he exists and then you observe him and you know his nature and then you start to to reveal his nature but the the actual process of going going from from the fact that he exists to what he is um happens at the at the at the at this higher level of, of abstraction mm -hmm. um and i think the what has been lost is when you go back down and make these this contact with sensible fact those can be sensible facts that are revealed by the physical mathematical right if you if you mm -hmm. if you have say you know Newton, uh, newton's laws of motion right this is telling these, these are sensible facts right as, as much as we understand that this is telling something about massive bodies it is telling us something about what mass is what it, what it means to be massive Right. Mm -hmm. this, this gives us an anest, right? We we discovered there is such a thing as mass. That's a property of bodies. Now, and what then, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But but that it's it, that we can still use the physical mathematical to do those things. Similarly, with say what what um, Einstein's relativity theory tells us, or Maxwell's equations of electromagnetism, or whatever it is, is is we we have these laws that we can understand. Okay, there is something. There is electric charge. It changes in these ways. Mm -hmm. This this reveals an anest to us and can tell and and gives us something to to understand those natures better. Um, again, we've lost this. We don't really try and do again, except in a very superficial way, because we don't have contact with with um, those those fundamental principles or realize what we're doing. And and yes, as we, as I, I was remember, saying, go ahead. No, continue. Uh, I was well, just remember just remembering that in high school physics, I uh, I might I had a I remember I had a question. You know, at one point it was we were doing I remember it was probably celestial mechanics, and I was like, what is mass after all? 
And basically, the best answer I got, it's uh, kilograms. <laughs> I, I very quickly realized the problem with that. I think the closest, uh, the best the best answer I got was from my dad, who's a computer scientist. And I, that was before even high school physics. And I was asking him about electromagnetic laws. And I was like, well, why does magnet? Why do magnetic fields have this shape? And I was just eventually, I eventually, I got to like the most, the most, you know, I, after like three degrees of why or something of why this, and then he explained them, and why this, and then he explains. He eventually got. Now you're asking to know the mind of God, which I think is probably the best answer I got. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> At that point. And I think that it, that is so unsatisfactory because yes, that is again, very the, unsatisfactory. But at one, at some point, for like a fifteen-year-old, I'm like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. It just well, is. I'll accept it for now. But the thing is, like, I, I think most people can't do. Uh, very, very few people existing now can do better or see a see a desire to do better. Right. Yes. If you if you went back even even to Newton, and Newton's very clear about this. If you do read some of the Principia, that he, he sort of realizes what he's leaving behind. Like, okay, like I'm not I'm not fleshing out these essences. I'm not saying exactly what these things are. I am making phenomenological claims, but there's work to be done to try and do this. And and what happened was is it was successful and people could use it really well. And, it, and you could, like I said, you can turn the crank, you can, you can calculate and you can get answers uh -huh. and, pe and people gave up on doing philosophy of nature. Right. But they're, they're very much like that. You should, you should finish high school physics knowing what mass is and no one knows what mass is right? like including, including physicists. Like no one can give a better answer than, than kilograms. Um, I'm going to be honest. I still don't know what mass is. By the way. That, that, this is my point. This is exactly my point is that no one does. And it's not seen as an issue. Yes. Right? It's, it's not just that the high school physics students know what, what mass is or, or can, can talk about an essence for mass. Physicists can't talk about an essence for mass. They can talk about an equation. They can, they can point you to Newton's second law. They can point you to the, the Higgs field and whatever equations describe it. Mm -hmm. But they, they, they've, there's, they've completely lost this idea of this philosophy of nature that we want to try and understand what it is. We want to understand an NS. Or they get the yes. NS. There is mass. I'm going to put these two diagrams actually simultaneously because this is actually important to my point. So uh, basically, we, we don't move beyond experimental sciences. We never go into philosophy of nature. We get an NS, we make a law, and uh, we, you know, we use it in uh, knowledge that issues and experience and so on and so forth. We actually do that part, I think, fairly well mm -hmm. in modern science. And then, uh, but we don't do any of the philosophy of nature where we get an NS you know, this NS here up top right. is the same as this sensible fact that ensues in an NS. And uh, we don't do the squid est part. It's just that uh, does not happen at all. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not not an option. And it's, again, Maritain sort of shrugs it off and says, you know, okay, there's, uh, he, I think this is in the in the next section. He sort of doesn't, you know, says it's, it's not really that big a deal. We can do good things with it. You know, we, we can leave philosophy to the philosophers and they don't really need to worry about this. I think it is it is such a detriment to science, to, to our understanding, is that we just we lose mm -hmm. so much by not trying to grasp these essences. And I think there are essences that are that are revealed in a confused way, right? As you know, Einstein is telling us something about the nature of things. Um, Schrodinger is telling us something about the nature of things. Yes. But because we don't try and develop these quidests, you get these very like, like we talked about these very backward understandings of things. You have people saying I mean, that, that cats are alive and dead at the same time. To, yes. To use the Schrodinger uh, to be, example. To be fair, Schro yeah, Schrodinger is actually using it as a reductio ad absurdum. Yes. Yes. And, and people have taken it as, I will see a clue. Your senses are just wrong. <laughs> of course, things can be alive and dead at the same time. Don't get me started yeah, on that one. Yeah. He was using it, I think, to rebut the Copenhagen interpretation of uh, quantum physics or something yes, like that. Yes, correct. If I remember correctly. Uh, but uh, if I, uh, what was I going to say right now? Oh, my God. I just, uh, 
because I was talking about shredding. Oh no, maybe he's not worried about it because he didn't have a Dawkins around. So he's like, <laughs> yeah, I have Schrodinger. And if you know Schrodinger, he literally predicted the existence of DNA. That's why the reason Watson and Crick's is it correct or Watson and Crick? Crick. I forget. Crick. Crick. Yeah. What the reason Watson and Crick were looking for DNA is because they read Schro one of Schrodinger's papers, lecture notes, where mm -hmm. he essentially is um, theorizing on the possible existence of DNA based on how information can actually work in, uh, in being encoded into a human and then based on what he understand, understands evolution to be. So Schrodinger, he actually is, for the most part, really concerned with uh, what is with quidest actually mm -hmm. i do remember there is actually a funny story i don't know if it's true it might be apocryphal from also when my math physics teacher we had for several years where i remember schrodinger uh, once walked into someone deducing one of his wave equations and uh he did do he induced it was purely inductive for him it was purely experimental so so the so he was actually very impressed because he had never heard the deduction before. So he actually finally understood the quid as to what he was talking about, <laughs> and he praised the lecture afterwards. This might be entirely apocryphal, but uh, I think it gives an idea to what scientists of the time were concerned about. It was a very much a what is this thing? I mean, there's uh, there's several others I forget. Maybe it was Niels Bohr or others that speak very highly of reading Platonic dialogues for understanding what things are. So as an example, and you see it a lot in Einstein too, is he's, he's very concerned with what the thing actually is. And you see it less and less and less. Like by the time you get to Feynman, the sort of the, the, one of the next great geniuses of physics, he's sort of aware there's a problem. He's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm doing things and I have no idea what I'm talking about. And he ultimately sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, oh, well, I guess we'll just keep going on. And he's yeah, really but he's so charismatic, one. we don't care. Well, but, but, <laughs> is essentially what happened. Yeah, but he at least realizes there's a problem, right? Like, yes. and, and like, and, and you know, Einstein and Schrodinger are, are, are noticing a problem, and they're actually trying to deal with it, and they're trying to solve it. Feynman sees a problem, has no clue how to approach it, and just sort of moves on. And since you know, if you look at someone like Hawking, as as brilliant as he is, there's no the, the problem is even gone. Like he doesn't realize there's any problem and starts saying some yes. sort of ludicrous things at some point because of it. Same with Dawkins. Uh, same with Dawkins. Yes. Same with Daniel Dennett, who is a philosopher of. Uh, Specifically, it's huge mind, usually. He's mm -hmm. a philosopher of mind. But even, uh, I think Phaser notes this in, uh, uh, what's the name? Last Superstition, which I'm also making my way through. Mm -hmm. um, he notes this, but, you know, even like critical crit studies of Dennett and reviews of him, which are friendly, note that he's a very unsystematic thinker with really just interesting observations, but who really doesn't have a whole system. And a lot of the stuff usually falls apart if you look at it closely. Mm hmm so you sort of get into the same problem with like neuroscience you get into the same problem in physics you get into the same problem with biology you know you can see this in dennett dawkins and hawking you can see all this in just these free case studies i don't know who would be the example of physics but i'm sure there are many of understanding what actually are like electrons what's valency what's charge what's right. bonding what does that mean um so on and so forth what does it mean for something to bond to bond to this thing instead of the other because it has a higher valency even though both one is closer than the other and you know so on and so forth mm -hmm. yeah i, I, I I think so much of that is, is just not being done. And it's it's interesting, um, jumping ahead a little bit, because uh, Maritain goes on and, and talks about this sort of this issue in, in physico-mathematical sciences and the phys physics and chemistry in particular. And like I said, he sort of, you know, says that, you know, there, there's some sort of break in there that we can't really do anything about. But then he starts talking about biological and, phys and psychological knowledge. Um, so it's the section called knowledge of a biological and psychological kind. 
and his conclusion is like, okay, you know, if they're if they're doing things properly, it will naturally lead them to these these philosophy of nature questions. As you know, he gives a couple of examples of of, mod, of work being done at the time that I think I, I was not familiar with, but people were sort of noticing it's like, hey, there is some sort of animating principle for these living things. There's some, you know, there's the the cycloid or the factor E, or there's these these things that, you know, he thought, okay, the people are going to sort of be drawn to the natural conclusions of okay, the existence of a of a unifying principle is there's going they're going mm -hmm. to discover substances and discovers you know realize that the the Aristotelian idea of a soul or the Thomistic idea of of uh, of a human soul or an yeah, animal that's soul. what happened with Edith Stein and Jung, right. uh, Saint Edith Stein, I should say, and mm -hmm. Jung in a different sense. You know, he he went back. He was raised, I believe, a Lutheran, but mm -hmm. he left it for many years under Freud's influence, who was an atheist, and then he came back to it after his study of essentially the archetypes of the collective unconscious and what they mean and after reading the gospel uh mm -hmm. so as a, in his psychological studies he eventually came back to christianity although not a catholic um so you know there are some people around that time who mm -hmm. sort of you know give mariton some leeway for thinking this way but man he really didn't predict it well yeah <laughs> the that's the thing is if he sees that and, and what happens is the exact opposite is those sciences have moved towards the physical as they have also abandoned a philosophy of nature and become entirely empirical and and physiomathematical and they do it a lot worse because you know physics again if you if you can reduce there, there's not a, if you're looking at atoms there's not a lot of being there right you can reduce into quantity yes. very easily if you're talking about a living thing you're already at a much higher level of being and if you're trying to reduce that to quantity you're having a hard time if you're trying to do psychology and you're trying to understand a human mind and you're trying to reduce that to quantity you are hopeless but that's what's happened is the successes in the physical mathematical has, has made biology and psychology say oh we're going to do that so we're going to if we have enough surveys and things that we can quantify that's going to tell us something about life. And it, and it mm -hmm. has failed so abysmally. Yes. And there's actually a, a good observation by our mutual friend that you mentioned earlier in one of his uh, discussions in his uh, CERN podcast, which shall not be named, uh, <laughs> that he, I think it was, uh, he was talking about Aristotle's De Anima, where Aristotle makes the observation that the less form there is, the mass, the less matter there is, and the less matter there is, the less form there is. And you know, Aristotle didn't know about atoms, or maybe he did with Democritus. Maybe he had heard of the, a, a nothing, nothing like the theory. modern atom, certainly. Certainly nothing like the modern atom, uh, that's for sure. But maybe he had heard of, you know, uh, some theory of an you know, something which cannot be split up. But even the modern atom can be split up. You can talk about quarks and so on. Sure. But um, you know, they have way less form <laughs> than a, yes. and way less matter in the terms of fact than a, than a human being, certainly. And, you know, that's a physical observation and it sort of it contradicts his other statement about, uh, you know, philosophy of nature doesn't really have anything to do with metaphysics or physica uh, is sort of can be sort of entirely separate mm -hmm. from metaphysics as a science in itself. OK, um, you may, uh, so I want to jump into the conclusions, but do you have any other points before then? No, I just have something? a diagram of natural theology if you want to talk about it. Okay, yeah, we, can, we do natural theology real quick. Let me get back. Yeah, so um, I mean, this would this would be properly metaphysics um, as such. So again, we, we we still have to start from the senses. We still have to have to observe. There are there is change. There are like you like you mentioned with uh, with Saint Thomas. We we start from things that we directly observe: existence of change, existence of of things, of intelligibility. We get an anest. There is substance is a thing, form is a thing, matter is a thing. And then he has instead of instead of quid est, we have quid non est. Um, but we can we can go from there, and we and we never need to make contact with the physical again. Once once you have your your, you understand that they're being as such. 
you don't need to make contact with sensible facts and you, and you, and indeed can't even say anything about really valuable about sensible facts at some point. Right. It mm -hmm. goes back to his, his discussion on the, the um, majesty and poverty of metaphysics in chapter one, that we're not doing metaphysics to tell us about sensible facts. We're doing metaphysics to tell us about being right. We're doing metaphysics to, to, to better understand ultimately to understand God. Yeah. Um, but to understand the super great sensible. Quote. Yeah. There's this great quote about uh, we don't need a truth that serves us, but a truth that we may serve. I uh, I shared that with a, um, a deacon friend of mine recently, and he, he was not familiar with Maritime, but his his jaw dropped. He's like, "I'm gonna go write that down. There might be a homily on it. We'll see." <laughs> that's so good. That's such a so, yeah. That's such yeah. a beautiful quote. And it's mm -hmm. buried in a treatise on metaphysics <laughs> in the middle of a paragraph or something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, actually, I do have a question here. By quid non s, is he talking about negative natural theology in the sense of a uh, I believe it's called you know it's apophatic, apophatic, and cataphatic. So uh, I forget which one is which, but one is what we act, attribute to God, that which we can attribute to God, and that which we can at least say negatively, this does not belong to God. So privation does not belong to God, and certain other things. And then by negatively saying that, we can say what does belong to God, or is he just saying this is not existent in material reality? By quid non est. Yeah, let me see if I can find that because again the diagrams are not particularly helpful unless you read the yes. all the text around them. I'm trying to see if I can. I find... mean, he used the word anonoetic, which uh, <laughs> I mean, I sort of understand it because I think noetic is that which pertains to the mind. So mm -hmm. he's saying an anonoetic intellection. I think, but if I understand, I forget if it's Greek or Latin. I think it's Greek noetic. I believe. Although right. Anna, I'm not sure. Um, uh, would be something which is does is you know beneath the intellection of the mind, beneath the consideration of the mind, and so you get the sensible facts from the senses, and then there is an NS with with, with an uh, with an intellection, and then you proceed to the supersensible. But I don't remember if he's talking about uh, bears in the real existence of an immaterial object. Uh, <laughs> sitting here just trying to scan through it. I don't think he, he, he doesn't directly note it. Um, I, uh, so I, I think it is, you know, as, as like you said, that, that these things are, are, are inherently non-immaterial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about there is a real existence on an, on an immaterial object to which knowledge by analogy. Oh, and a noetic. Okay, mm -hmm. now I understand. It's knowledge by analogy. Uh, that's okay. I remember now. Uh, knowledge by analogy. So it's not a... Oh, Anna is not not, it's not non. Okay, so it's not non-noetic. Okay, Anna noetic. Uh, has been able to rise, beginning with the existence of such an object. Okay, I sort of understand it now. All thanks to the diagram. Sort of. All thanks <laughs> to a diagram, baby. <laughs> okay, what more notes do you have? Because I, so I, I have I, no notes. I just want to want to jump to the conclusion um, where he uh, he dumps on Cod again briefly. Okay. I'll stop <laughs> that's, that's right always now. fun. Sure, sounds good. Okay. Uh, uh, proper. Uh, what well, what is the point? Is it point, so, uh, uh, so? It's it's thirty two and thirty three are the are the last okay, two of the okay. chapter. Very so end. first, because okay. because what he's going to get into in chapter three is start developing his his critical realism, and the point that he makes that I think is excellent is 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 the the harmony between Thomistic philosophy and um, empirical sciences is that is because yes. it is it is derived from the real it won't conflict with the real right its conclusions will, will naturally be harmonious superior to its philosophy it will be superior to the, to the real but they come from it so you don't have these problems and things he talks about like mechanism monism psychophysical parallelism cartesian theory of consciousness universal evolutionism um 
because they're, I would say fundamentally idealist. I, I, I might want to use that word more advisedly, but I'm going to stick with mm -hmm. it. Um, but sure. they're, they sort of impose their will on, um, as he says, these systems impose on science, the most deplorable metaphysical shackles is they, they sort of, they really keep science from doing what it's supposed to do. Whereas Thomistic philosophy growing out of, of sense intuition and sense understanding, like, like we showed in those wonderful diagrams, um, mm -hmm. is naturally <laughs> in, in harmony with those sciences and, and benefits from them. And in, in as much as it can, it can get sensible truths from them and contributes to them as, as much as it, it reveals natures to the sciences, uh, which I think is an excellent point. Just the, the, the scholasticism is, is really the only good way to do, to do science or, or scientific, uh, a Thomistic metaphysics is the only reasonable way to do to do science because it's the only one that is that is so properly uh, so so correctly understands the relationship between the two yeah to use his degrees of knowledge the only proper philosophy of nature is a thomistic aristotelian one is a yes. scholastic one in yes the end. and then in 33 um he uh, well just briefly again he, he uh, decides to insult kant which i'm always a fan of i'll, I'll for for your sake i'll uh, i'll admit it right now no, you can read it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first part of 23, 33, I assume. Sure, yeah. Just Kant denied to metaphysics the character of science because for him experience was the product and the terminus of science since science built it by applying to sensible data necessities, which are pure forms of the mind. But St. Thomas recognized in metaphysics the supreme science of the natural order because for him experience is the starting point of science, which reading within the sensible given the intelligible necessitate necessities that surpass it can transcend it by following those necessities and thereby achieve a super experimental knowledge that is absolutely certain. Did you notice that he's using science in a different sense again? I, I did. And it's going to, we're, we're, we're going to leave that aside. <laughs> yeah. He's using science as knowledge. Every time uh, you get confused by the use of science, uh, just change it for knowledge. That's the only thing I would do if I was a translator. Whenever I notice mm -hmm. that it's an equivocal use, I'd mm -hmm. put in knowledge. I'd put in uh, or scientia. I'd put in scientia. I think scientia is a better way to do it. Is differentiate yeah. scientia as knowledge from science in terms of the the experimental science that he uses it to mean half the time. <laughs> yeah, because you can sort of say you have intuitive knowledge of stuff, and that's not really scientia. Mm -hmm. um, really, you you know you have to build it up to that to a proper intellection and consideration of of, of the thing. Um, and then you get to experimental sciences and uh, wisdom, what he calls wisdom, uh, which is metaphysics and, you know, philosophy of nature is sort of in between those two. It has relative wisdom, which is another very weird uh, distinction which he makes, but it's an interesting <laughs> one, which I think is, I think it's correct, really. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so I think this is actually, this is actually correct. Uh, mm -hmm. Although, again, the use of science is slightly confusing. Uh, metaphysics. Yeah, yeah. It's the product of uh, purely experience, which are application necessities to of the form of the mind, which, you know, either the there, and then there's debates about what Kant means about the form of the mind, where the world conditions the mind, or wherever the mind conditions the world, whether it's both, and so on and so forth. Roger Scroon tends towards it's both. I remember interpretations of that, but that's not interesting. We're here to talk about St. Thomas and Maritime. <laughs> the, the correct thinkers. Yeah, the correct thinkers. So I th uh, um, unless you have any other points, I'm happy to stop there. We went about twice as long as I think we were attending. I hope this was was really interesting. Do you have any any last points on chapter two? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I don't know if I have any last points except a quick summary. It'd be uh, read the the right hand corner of a first diagram. You sort of get what he what he's talking about with degrees. Uh, that's what he really is concerned with. 
and he's the concern with abstraction and relative abstraction from the sensible to the super sensible is his main concern, how that works in the mind, how we attain that. And that's his main concern in this chapter to argue how that can be and the necessity of how the mind functions in regards to these facts. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, this is all going to lead into chapter three on critical realism, where he develops his his uh, his term for um, what's going to be his his um, basically uh, modernizing of of Thomistic ideas again, Thomistic realism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an it's another bear of a chapter. We will see when we get to it. I'm excited to yeah. do it. It might be a couple of weeks. I know uh, holidays are sort of a nice time to find some time to read. It might be getting a little bit worse for us, but I definitely want to keep plowing into it. Yep. Um, this has been fun. I'm, I'm hoping this is interesting for anyone besides the two of us. If not, yes. um, I if don't not, mind. We'll keep doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's good. We're going to get through it regardless. Um, for the for the for the five people that have enjoyed it so far, please keep it up. Or we'll keep doing them. It's all for you. It's all to love. Um, any uh, any last plugs, comments, things you want to add in before we before we adjourn? Uh, you can find me. I guess my only plug is you can find me at at available username on Twitter. I might take a break on Twitter. Uh, I might do like our mutual friend, take a break for a week. I'm considering doing that uh, after New Year's. Uh, but until then, I'll be on Twitter and then I m- might be off for like a week. But I'll I'll probably, I'll try to use that extra time of non-internet usage to read through the chapter free. So hopefully I'll have that ready when I'm back. Uh, so that's Funny. what I'm planning to do. Hopefully Funny. I'll also be able to finish what I'm writing and actually get to it instead of, you know, doom scrolling over Twitter. Uh, <laughs> so that will be fun. That will be very nice if I manage to do that. What are you writing right now? I'm writing a quick thing on uh, the nature of hyperreality. It started on uh, as a article on the hyperreality of modern civil marriage uh, and what that essentially has done to culture. I'm now sort of with what I've with my notes so far, I sort of moved on to hyper reality in general and explaining it to a more, uh, to, to people who sort of, I say common sense. I was going to use Aristotelian, but it's really people who use common sense and aren't used to continental philosophy. So I'm sort of trying to explain (laughs) that. And there's actually a very easy way to put it into Catholic terms as well. The very basic analogy is, uh, you know, the unity between man and woman in marriage represents the unity between Christ the bridegroom and the church, its bride. Uh, and that is represented there. It is a real sign of a real thing. And then civil marriage became was originally a sign of this sign of the original of the original thing, which is the union between Christ and the bridegroom. So there's another degree of separation. And then modern marriage would get modern civil marriage would get there is absolutely no reference to the sacrament of marriage. It is its own thing. It has no reference to anything else. It lives only for its own sake. That would be the basics that I can use to that that was what I was going to talk about originally, but it might have it might have overgrown it now with my notes. Looking forward to it. It's gonna be awesome. Okay, um, I am the anarcho-Catholic at Einkath on Twitter. At some point, I will finish my article on materialism and idealism. Um, very relevant concerning some of the things we talked about in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to get written at some point. I promise. I really, I'm, ex- I'm so excited to do it, but I've just not been able to, to finish it. <laughs> this has been a blast. Um, we will do this again. Has. We will do this again as soon as we are both ready for it. It might be mm-hmm. a little while. I'd like, I want to, I want to keep it rolling, rolling and make sure we're not falling too behind and haven't forgotten everything, but hopefully some point in January, we'll get to chapter three and we'll go from there. Um, 
appreciate you guys. Uh, we are out of here. <laughs>